Hello, Utah, and welcome to Fireside Chats with Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. My name is Felicia Maxfield Barrett, and I'm the Executive Director. These Fireside Chats are short conversations with Utah citizen diplomats who are reformulating the American worldview by bringing their global experience back to Utah. We hope that the embers of this conversation will light a fire in you and also make the global local. Today, I'm excited to welcome Gerald Brown, who just so happens to be one of my favorite supervisors of all time. He is the Utah State Refugee Co Coordinator at uh, Utah's Department of Workforce Services. Thank you so much for joining us, Gerald. It's a pleasure to be here, Felicia, and it's good to see you. It is good to see you too. Um, I'm not going to go too much into your bio because that's what I really want this conversation to be is to learn how you have um, really lit this flame of serving refugees around the world and uh, in Utah. And so I hope through your storytelling that you will just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, so with that, I want to begin with asking you, was there a specific moment in your life where you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that working with refugees was going to be your life calling? And if so, can you talk through that story just a little bit? Yeah, I, I'm happy to. Uh, so I was, uh, I grew up in Eastern North Carolina in a rural area. I went to college in Chapel Hill, the University of North Carolina, and got a BA and some liberal arts thing. Uh, and I was working in construction and got bored and decided that I should go see the world. So I looked for ways to do that. This is back in 1975. And uh, found that I could uh, go to Egypt, Cairo, Egypt, uh, and worked for the YMCA there in kind of a Peace Corps uh, uh, gig. And uh, Cairo just seemed so exotic to me and exactly the kind of place I wanted to go to experience. So I did that, was lucky enough to get it. And uh, I was in Cairo in a poor neighborhood for two years. Uh, and every morning I got up and I would look out of my little window and I could see uh, little kids foraging through garbage trying to find food. And this would happen every day. I, I guess their parents sent them out or, you know, it, it seemed pretty organized. Uh, and day after day after day, I saw that and, of course, experienced other things while there for two years and it slowly occurred to me in a very visceral way how unfair the world is uh just you know because i was born where i was born i grew up the way i did and because they were born where they were born they were looking for something to eat in garbage and just <laughs> Uh, because I'm very sophisticated, it, it, it struck me as just being very unfair. Uh, while I was kind of internalizing that, I was experiencing a totally different culture for the first time in my life. 
And I was just uh, riveted by how cool it was and how much sense it made in some ways. And, you know, I, I was just taken by it, just the difference of it uh, and how devout people were to it. And so I was experiencing and starting to appreciate a different culture. And I was getting this quiet sense of, you know, interest in social justice. And so finally, after those two years, I, I went to Taiwan for a year to teach English. And it was a, a different uh, culture, uh, which, you know, continued to uh, spark my interest in cultures. I just decided it really did occur to me, two things occurred to me. One, that you know, I'd like to do something in my life that made the world a little more fair. I wasn't stupid enough to think I could fix everything, but you know, just to do something to make it a little more fair. And the other thing was that I needed, while uh, knocking around the world was interesting, I felt a need to get about uh, starting, a, you know, to learn a professional thing, uh, to start acquiring a life skill, a life work. To you know, to to, to get down to it, I I was ready to be serious about my life. I guess. So I went back to the U.S. and checked on a number of things and, you know, went out ever in doubt, go to graduate school. So I did that. But after a week in grad school, I decided that that wasn't the best way for me to do what I wanted to do. So I quit. And I learned that there was refugee resettlement going on in the United States that it started while I was outside the United States. And there was a program in Houston, Texas, that was looking for somebody to, you know, work with refugee resettlement. So I drove my truck down there and they hired me and I've been doing it ever since in different ways in different places. So that's what happened. It was, I guess, boils down to different experiencing different cultures and really seeing how unfair the world is. But can you talk through what are some of the refugee resettlement initiatives and projects that you've been a part of throughout your history? You mean some of the work I've done? Or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I did the local resettlement in uh, Houston. That's what IRC and CCS do here in the Salt Lake Valley. They're the local offices for national organizations. And I did that for four years. And then I went to work for one of the national organizations in New York City. And I ended up running their national resettlement program. Uh, that committee for refugees and immigrants. So I did that for an, about nine years. I got to visit local offices all over. I got to know the federal program and the federal offices related to uh, refugee resettlement. And then I, uh, for a variety of reasons, decided to become an INS, Immigration Nationality Services. It's now uh, USCIS within Homeland Security, an asylum officer for them. Yeah, those are the people that... Uh, 
interview asylum applicants and decide whether they get to asylum or not. So I did that in New York City for about four years. That was very interesting and edifying and also very stressful. Uh, I needed a break after that, quite frankly. And uh, our son had been born in New York City. And so we decided to move out here to Utah, at least for a while, just for a change. Mary, my wife, had grown up here. So we moved out here, but uh, as I said, my life work is, is refugee stuff. So I started working remotely for a, uh, a nonprofit out of DC, but I did it from Utah. And that involved uh, providing technical assistance to Office of Refugee Resettlement grantees, mostly uh, refugee community organizations they were funding. So I did that uh, through most, you know, for about six years. And then uh, you'll remember Felicia in 2006, Governor Huntsman decided to look at the whole Utah refugee services system and call for a year's worth of town hall meetings to uh, kind of review the system to get community input on what needed fixing. And because I'm, a, I'm interested in refugees and I was here, I attended those and they were fascinating and very lively. <laughs> and uh, out of that came uh, a, a letter from the group uh, with about eight recommendations to Huntsman of how to make things better. And God bless him, he accepted every one of them and made them happen. And one of the things that he did was to uh, elevate the uh, refugee coordinator's office. Every state has to have a refugee coordinator that manages federal funding programs to elevate that office in state government and to give it more resources. And they did a search for the director and I was lucky enough to become the first director. And uh, it was just an amazing opportunity. And we did a lot of cool stuff. We had a lot of support. Uh, you were instrumental in, in those first years. And it was just kind of remarkable at how cool it was. While I was with the refugee uh, national organization, I got to do some refugee kind of assignments overseas. So I've, I've been in refugee camps a few times. I've, uh, I was loaned to the Department of State a couple of times to do things, one in Bahrain, one in, uh, one in Guantanamo. Those were amazing experiences. So I just had the best career anybody could possibly have. It's just been very fulfilling and very interesting. Um, you know, when, when I started working with you, I had just graduated from the University of Utah with my degree in anthropology. And I remember going through that program and the two terms that were always used were assimilation and acculturation. And then when I started working with you, you started using the term integration. And I remember 
thinking, how revolutionary it was that you used that term. Can you talk through why did you choose to use that term integration as opposed to the other more traditional terms of assimilation and acculturation? Well, from, you know, what little I've read and what I know and what I think, integration, assimilation is kind of when you take newcomers and you try to make them just like you, right? So you you say, don't worry about all that stuff in the past, do it this way. And uh, integration is more of a two-way street in which you want the welcoming community to be willing to change as well as the newcomer changing. It's kind of a mutual experience. Uh, So you want the newcomer, refugees in our case, usually, they have so much to learn. You know, there are all these systems that they need to uh, develop literacy in the education system, the health system, the employment system, the transportation system, on and on and on. So many things to learn. At the same time, we want them to retain parts of their culture, as long as they're legal, that they can retain. Because we think in integration that that makes the community stronger, more interesting, and cooler. So, I mean, if you have people that see the world in different ways and solve problem, come at problems in different ways, we think that behooves the greater community. It makes us stronger. It makes us more flexible. But for that to work, the mainstream community, the welcoming community has to be willing to buy into, you know, the fact that we want people to uh, retain parts of their culture. They also have to be willing to welcome refugees and to befriend them, right? And if they're not willing to do that, then the whole thing's not going to work. So uh, to to me, it's one of the most important parts of integration. I mean, refugees having an American friend, not necessarily an American mentor or an American, you know, overseer, but an American friend, that is almost as important as having a decent job. So anyway, that's the difference that I see in integration and assimilation. Right. Excellent. Um, I've always known you to be an out-of-the-box idea thinker, and you've developed some really great initiatives here in Utah, including the GOAT Project, the Refugee Center. But what are some of the initiatives or some of the, the needs that you still see are the most pressing at this point? Yeah, there's a bunch of them. So one of them is we've got to find a better way for uh, refugees who come here as young teenagers to uh, to thrive. And the way the system's set up now, it's against them. So you take a kid that's 12 years old, and depending on what their background is, they may have no education at all, and their parents won't either. And you would take that kid and you put them in an un- 
age-appropriate class, you know, in high school or middle school, whatever. And it's really hard for those kids that age to thrive, right? And so what sometimes happens is they become frustrated. They, uh, they don't feel welcome. And if refugees don't feel welcome, they don't feel ownership for their community, right? They don't feel a responsibility for it. So those kids sometimes drop out of school. They have no skills, they can't get jobs and they hang out and they feel no ownership for the community. So it doesn't bode well for any of us. So I think that serving refugee youth from challenging backgrounds that come here at a certain age is a huge, huge thing. I think that another huge uh, area that needs a lot of concentration is helping refugee women thrive here. Uh, I mean, I'm telling you this, uh, but you know, I mean, women have a hard road to hoe anyway. But refugee women are especially challenged because of the cultures that they come from, their, their educational background. But, uh, you know, we know that if you could help a refugee woman in the family to thrive, you're helping everybody because she will bring her children with her. The husband, hopefully will, but not necessarily. It's more often the refugee woman that you can count on. So it's not just helping refugee women. We think that's the best way to help refugee families. But we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, I think that when it comes to, in general, with international development issues, immigration, refugee advocacy, um, a lot of times people might get into it with a concept of white saviorism. Like we are almost this like culture of like we can take people in and help them because we have it right almost. And that's not necessarily true. So I was wondering how you're able to advocate for balancing that um, and really making sure that we are putting the empowerment of them first rather than self-fulfillment. That's a great question. Uh, I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying about assimilation and uh, integration, right? one you're trying to make them just like you uh, so I think that you have to start out knowing the value of other cultures if you get to know a refugee or two you cannot help but appreciate the strengths that they have refugees are the most uh, the strongest people I've ever met they're the most resilient they are, they are proof that human beings can go through atrocities and come out the other end and still make a life for them and their children. So, I mean, if you meet a couple of people and get to know them, then that helps you uh, not be a white savior. Having said that, I still, I've been doing this for 41 years or something like that. And I still find myself falling back into that role of thinking, yeah, I know everything and do it like this. I, I still do it. So I think it's a constant struggle. I don't think you could just decide it and do it. I think you got to watch yourself every minute. Yeah. So 
Um, last week, I, I believe, um, it, it, there were reports that the Biden administration was planning on continuing the um, cap on refugee resettlements that the Trump administration had. Um, and I think the number was like 15,000. Um, and I, I, if I'm not mistaken, they ended up walking that back um, and they're going to raise the cap. Um, but I'm interested that if we were to elect a, you know, President Brown um, in 2024, 2028, um, what kinds of um, federal policies would you implement um, it, it, in terms of refugee resettlement in the United States? Yeah, I don't think that you can beat the way that Biden started. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've read it or not, but if you haven't, you, you might find it interesting. It's uh, the name of it is the Emergency Revised Presidential Act of Federal Fiscal Year 2020. You can Google it and, and find it. If not, I can send it to Felicia and she can share it with you. Uh, but it lays out the world, the refugee situation, and the number of refugees that the United States should take in the coming federal fiscal year, right? And it was such a pleasure to read because under the previous administration that it had been very different. And so it was nice to read something that had been written by professionals that knew what they were talking about and that from my point of view, reflected the values of the United States. So I could, you know, if, if I were president, I'd probably steal that and plagiarize it. Uh, where I think he may have erred, uh, so the, the, the determination does a couple of things. It says where the needs are, uh, what kinds of people the U.S. will take, right in the coming year and the numbers. Uh, I think that everything was right except maybe he didn't want to go with such big numbers in that paper. That was the only, you know, who am I to criticize him, but that was the only flaw that I saw because it is so hard in this complicated time to know what you can do until you get into it. And I think they found that the refugee resettlement program is so uh, different and so minimalized now that it's going to take time to build it back before they can get those numbers in, right? I still think he wants to do it, but it's going to take time. Also, with all of the stuff going on in the U.S. border, southern border, complicates the whole situation too. And that's another reason why I wish he hadn't come up with those initial numbers, because now it makes him look uninformed, which his people certainly are not. He's got one of the best refugee teams anybody's ever had around him. But they have to back off on the numbers, makes people think, well, what are these guys doing? Then he comes back because people just threw a fit when he did that. So now I think the latest thing is he's going to look at, relook at it in May for the numbers for this fiscal year, which end in September. And my guess is that, you know, they'll up it some, but it's not going to be to 62, 
500, which is the thing that is put for this. A few years ago, there was a ban on refugees coming to the United States that were from Muslim countries. Um, what did you see or did you see any um, long-term effects in the Utah community in terms of um, Muslims living in Utah? Um, and how do we overcome that? Well, yeah, I did, uh, as I'm sure you did as well, Felicia. I mean, people that had come here as refugees, uh, people, you know, mothers from Somalia who still had family members over there who had been traumatized already by their refugee experience, had gone through the adventure of being resettled here, but had still been worried for so many years about their relatives, you know, and the danger that they remained in. And then to have, have the possibility of them being rescued, cut off because of their religion, it, it, it re-traumatized a lot of people. I mean, we don't see it because we don't know it. We're not in their apartments, but you know, you and I, because we work with them, we occasionally talk to people. Yeah, it's had a lasting effect. How do you get over it? You say, I guess the same way you get all over the other trauma. You try to support people. You try to tell them, know that, they, that you love them. You try not to judge them. You try to work on, you know, governmental policy that'll help them, right? Uh, you listen to them. You know, I'm no mental health expert, but that's what I'm trying to do. Hello, Gerald. It's great to see you after oh, hello, my friend. many years. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so long years ago, when I was attending these uh, refugee providers uh, network meeting, one of the things that I was hearing from you that you always were dreaming of uh, uh, big refugee center at the heart of Salt Lake City. And uh, so now we have this refugee education center. Is this something that uh, fulfilled your dream of that re big refugee center? And also how this has been um, a good resource center for refugee communities uh, since the opening of this center? and uh, what are some great programs they are providing? Yeah, so thank you for the question. Uh, so first of all, we have moved. So we're no longer at the uh, Salt Lake City Meadowbrook campus. We're now at uh, 1950 West, 150 North, uh, at the old Slick uh, building, uh, Felicia, if you'll remember that. Uh, so I think that, so has my dream been fulfilled? No, uh, but it's certainly an important resource for the community and it's a step in the right direction. And until we get something bigger and better, it is sure a good thing. So uh, why, when we, uh, when we moved, Ahmed was during the COVID thing, right? So we're not normal yet. 
because we haven't opened up. Uh, but we're certainly looking forward to opening up this this summer and doing the same things we were doing at the old campus. And one of those is to allow refugee community organizations to have meetings there in the evening and on weekends at no cost so they can bring their communities together to talk, to have fun, and to talk about their own lives and to uh, give us advice, okay? So the, the fact that we have the space to do that now, we even have more space than we did before, that's, an, that's a good thing. We'll also be able to have classes again in the evenings and on weekends that are provided by other nonprofits, by refugees themselves, by volunteers, and that is at no cost. All right, I've got one final question. Um, so here at Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy, our guiding principle is the idea that we all play a role in helping shape foreign relations, both here domestically as well as internationally. And we do it as simply as one handshake at a time. And you've certainly talked to befriending a refugee and really getting to know each other. And it is a life-changing event. Certainly, you know, I can speak so from personal experience. But beyond being a, just a friend, what else can the broader community do to help support refugee resettlement in Utah? What would be your call to action to us today? Well, befriending a refugee is the most important thing, Felicia. Even if you can't speak the language, if you're across a desk or you know a coffee table from somebody and you're just smiling, that alone is important. And then if you stay with the person over time, you'll learn to communicate. So that's the first. And I just don't want to minimize that. Beyond that, we need volunteers who are willing to tutor refugees uh, and to help with things. But we hook people up in continuing relationships. For example, we ask for two hours a week for a minimum of six months, because we want the two, the refugee and the mainstream person to get to know each other so that they can uh, become friends eventually. Because if they get to know each other, they'll trust each other, communication grows. But if you have one picnic in the summer, that's not gonna happen. I mean, it makes people feel good, but it doesn't do much, quite frankly, excuse me for being so blunt. For volunteering, the Know Your Neighbor program might be the best way. And the best way to connect to that is through me. Okay. Through uh, for giving money, there are all sorts of reputable uh, organizations that accept donations for refugees. Uh, Asian Association, the International Rescue Committee, Catholic Community Services, uh, many others, English Skills Learning Center, I can see Auckland's eyes just going, uh, you know, the International Charter School. Another one is in, our, in my office, and we have a refugee services fund. And in that fund, the state manages it, and every cent of it goes to either helping people with rent or helping them get education. So that is a responsible way to help as well. Gerald, thank you so much. Thank you for everything that you have done. 
for the state of Utah. Thank you for the work that you've done in bringing refugee resettlement to the forefront of who we are as Utahns. I certainly know that you played a significant role with that. Any final thoughts before we end? Well, just I just wanted to repeat that nobody has benefited from my career more than I have. I have met heroes after heroes after heroes. I have been so inspired and I just feel so lucky to have met the refugee people that I have met. So it's my honor. All right. Thank you, everybody, for for spending your lunch hour with us today. I hope this has been beneficial. Uh, Feel free to contact us if you have other questions. And thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Gerald. Thank you. Thank you. These fireside chats are brought to you by Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. A special thank you to Gerald Brown, our guest speaker, and Westminster College as our continuous partner. I'm your guest host, Felicia Maxwell Barrett, and I'll see you for the next fireside chat.